Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I've said this um, in, in, in recent years that I'm a recovering prayer person. And that's not to say that I don't pray, because that sounds really negative. We spent the last like three weeks talking about prayer. Um, but for several years, I kind of defined my value and my worth by the fact that I was like a prayer person that I would spend long times in corporate prayer. I would get up like unreasonably early for private prayer. And that was like my, my flex on other Christians, you know, where it's like, man, I may be pretty bad at telling other people about Jesus, but boy, howdy, have I told Jesus about Jesus. <laughs> and this all culminated, so to speak, in I, I began working at a prayer ministry. It was a Global missions based, they had missionaries all over the 1040 window, if you're familiar with terms like that. But well, the way they defined their core values is that they were a prayer ministry that did missions. And to me, as a prayer person who was experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, like, I, I really need to be better about being a witness and telling people about Jesus and those kinds of things. I was like, well, this is perfect, because it's like the most similar thing that I could do. And so I went there, and I joined a training school to eventually... Uh, come on staff and those kinds of things. And I remember um, it, was, it was this sort of, to me and probably not to a whole ton of other people, it was this very impressive environment. They were housed inside a big, beautiful building, that uh, a ministry that was bigger and more beautiful owned. And uh, they had like a duck pond outside. They had like rocks from the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. It was a beautiful thing. And so I, I go in there and there's people in our prayer meetings who, like, I've read books that they wrote. So that's just, like, for a person that, like, is as big of a nerd as me, that's a significant value that I, that I now add to the, the credibility of this ministry. And, and I know that some of these, these men are, are intense fasters, that they, that they fast, that this, this ministry had sponsored, like, uh, at least one 40-day fast a year. And they would do 21 days pretty often. They would do weekly fasting. They would do like these extended fasts. They'd do different condition fasts. I remember the director of our ministry said that he had done, I think it was 10 days Esther. If you're within the fasting charismatic community, that means no food and no water for 10 days. And um, don't recommend that. I'm going to talk about fasting today. Don't do that. Um, and he even said that. He's like, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Like, um, and I remember... We're in this thing, we're, we're doing prayer and missions and all this sort of stuff, and they call their first corporate fast. And I was like, all right, here we go. And I was genuinely surprised. Everything about this ministry was like wall-to-wall intense. Everything had to be so hardcore and intense. And when it came to fasting, they were like, just so you know, some of us are going to do this. It's not mandatory making eye contact with everybody in the room. It's not mandatory. I mean, if you, if you can do like a day, that's great. If you want to skip a, like lunch, that's great, you know, whatever. It's not mandatory. Just take it easy. Maybe if you want to drink like smoothies for a day, that's, that's fine. That's totally reasonable. And I remember whew, being so 
relieved <laughs> that it wasn't mandatory. I was like, everything about this place is so like intense and everybody wants to be so hardcore and I am not very good at fasting. And so when they're like, just take it, I mean, you could if you want to, and they explain like the biblical background and then all of a sudden they're like, but don't like freak out, it's fine, whatever, you know? And they're being, they're like qualifying it a whole ton. And I, I remember just being so relieved at that. And, and I, I've thought about that since then. And I've gone through a lot of, of seasons of growth and change and, and uh, very involuntary humbling <laughs> that has happened. Um, and I realized, like, why was that the one that really tipped the scale? When we're talking about, like, they were spending... Uh, money to staff prayer happening for several hours every single day in countries all over the planet. But fasting was like, but just, I mean, whatever. Actually, forget I said anything. Don't worry about it. And I've thought about that. And, and I wonder why this particular discipline sounds so extra, you know? I think Nate even said it, uh, I mean, it was probably months ago now talking about something else where it's like, we, we always joke about, it's like an inside joke of our church, the Christian plus plan, where it's like we, we tend to treat things like if you do this, then you, you like add to your Christian plus package, you know? So if you, um, if you speak in tongues or something like that, or if you fast, that's like Christian prime, you know? It's like because it seems rare and it seems intense and it seems over the top. And if I can use words like this with you this morning, and I think I can, it seems cult-y, to say like, oh yeah, my church is fasting. It's like, wow, get out of there. That's scary. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? They're fasting. And it's like, I remember doing the same thing when I was a youth pastor saying like, talking about fasting because Jesus talks about it. I got to talk about it. It's part of, the, part of the book. And just being like, man, kids are going to go home and, and misunderstand this. They're going to go home and tell their parents that I told them they're not allowed to eat and it's going to be this whole thing and I'm going to be in the Pagosa sun for shame, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And why is it that this seems so intense? When we talk about prayer, we spent the last three-ish weeks talking about the spiritual discipline of prayer. That is talking to the God of the universe who created everything who you cannot see. That's pretty weird, but somehow people can accept prayer as something like, I've had so many opportunities to tell people about Jesus where they don't want to hear the testimony of Jesus, but they will let me pray for them. Why is that? And so I was thinking about this, and I, and I was preparing for this morning, and I heard one pastor theorize why it is that fasting feels so culty, fasting feels so extra and over the top. And he said that our very nature of our culture is very individual. And as a, as a general rule, we don't like being told what to do. Does that resonate with anybody? Does anybody like relate to that? Does, everybody, does somebody like just love being bossed around? In their, don't raise your hand. I don't want other people to see that. Uh, be like, wow, I need some employees. Let's, let's get these people who love being bossed around. You know, it's like, and, and a lot of times obedience feels very transactional. It's like, oh, okay, I'll listen until I'm in charge. It's that old adage, like, as long as you're under my rule, uh, under my roof, you follow my rules. And it's like, well, someday I won't be under your roof. And I won't wash the dishes. And I won't use placemats when I eat dinner. I won't do it, Dad. You know, like, it's, it's this idea that this obedience is, is, is a temporary thing. It's transactional. 
And on top of that, our, our hyper-individual culture, and this is something that's sort of emphasized very heavily in the West, on top of that, we have a very indulgent culture that as a, as a people, we have accumulated resources to avoid even the risk of harshing our vibe. <laughs> and um, Shelby and I, um, we like to decompress at the end of the day, like watch a TV show or a movie or something. We've been watching Shark Tank. Have you guys ever watched Shark Tank? We're not like trying to become millionaires or entrepreneurs. I just like to see people's creative ideas. And I kid you not, this guy had a mobile outdoor air conditioning unit. And I was like, praise God, the world has changed. And he didn't get nobody, like spoiler, he didn't, nope, everybody thought it was dumb because it's just like a cooler full of ice that has a fan attached to it. And it's like, it's not a very investable business, but it's like, we will go to such great measures to not be uncomfortable. We will go through such great measures to not have denied ourselves anything that we need or we want. And, and I speak like this in general, because I'm sure there's, there's things that you're saying in your life. It's like, man, I've, I've cultivated this discipline. This has been really important to me. I'm not trying to call you down with this, but I want you to, to reflect on this and why fasting can hit you in such a conflicting way, because this is where denying yourself becomes very real. And at the essence of spiritual disciplines is the call of Jesus to follow him, which is predicated on denying yourself. That Jesus is our Savior, but he is also our Lord. That he has a plan for your life. That doesn't just mean everything you do, God's going to bless it. That means he has a plan for your life. Denying yourself doesn't feel quite as deny-y until you're fasting. <laughs> so you might be surprised to find out that the discipline of fasting is actually in the short list of implied and expected and assumed disciplines that Jesus introduces in the Sermon on the Mount. When he's developing this theology around what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, what it looks like to be a Christian, he says these three things that he implies that you will be a person who prays. He implies that you will be a person who gives money to poor people, and he implies that you will fast. And that feels like if that was my top three, that's not the three that I would probably pick, but, but Jesus used this in a purposeful way. And fasting has covered the history of the Bible, but it's also covered the history of our tradition as the church of Jesus. And so um, I don't want to just like blaze ahead without like offering definitions. I want to, I want to make it clear what I mean when I say fasting. The word commonly translated as fasting or too fast or whatever, um, it's a Greek word that means to suffer hunger. And so with this, uh, there's obviously the connotation that comes up where it's not something that happens to you. It's not like I didn't have enough food, so I was fasting. It's something that you willingly suffer hunger. And so it's a, it's a unique word in that respect. And some of you may be able to recall or, or think about the world today that this is not a uniquely Christian practice so to speak. And that shouldn't assuage our confidence in what Jesus says, that it's not something that is, is only practiced within Christianity. But you can see it in contemporary culture. I've, I've been told that a major, especially for, for men, a major diet trend is intermittent fasting, where you just don't eat for a long time every day. Um, there's more to it than that, but there's like science behind it. And there's also a lot of fasting within pagan antiquity, people who, who fast to appease a false deity. 
The prime difference in these examples and the way a Christian fasts is really the motive for the fast and the desired effect of the fast. So I want to use this general definition that we talked about, and this is going to be kind of our jumping off point because it contains a specific distinction that I want to point out. That is, this is when Jesus says fasting, he's, he's specifically referring to foregoing food. Now, there's another practice, there's another discipline called abstinence, where it is like giving up other things. And so this plays out in a couple different ways where sometimes you abstain from something that is bad for you, something that is either detrimental to your life or it's detrimental to your discipleship to Jesus. That's something that all of us should do. That's not really a sacrifice. That's, that's good, healthy discipline. But there's also this, this, uh, this part of, of abstinence that is forgoing something that isn't inherently bad for the sake of Jesus. And so I, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable or anything like that. But some of us, when we hear the word abstinence, we may think of like not having sex before you're married. That's usually the way that word is used. And it's not to say that sex is bad, but it's reserved for a specific place, if that makes sense. And so I say all that because that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is specifically food, because I, as the reading of the scripture, that is specifically what Jesus is talking about. So I want to look at our, our first text, our primary text of this morning. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 5, and I want to just set up the stage for us as we read this. So Jesus has been on the scene for a little while, not too long, but long enough that people are starting to note his ministry for two big things. Number one is incredible divine power, that he is doing things and saying things that no one has ever done or said before. And number two is his varying peculiar methods in doing the ministry. And so just prior to this passage, Jesus calls the tax collector Levi, who we later find out is, is Matthew. They're one and the same person. He calls him to repent and become one of his disciples so that way he can train him and lead him in the way of Jesus. Now, Matthew, or Levi, responds to this great honor by throwing a party. He invites all of his sinner friends. He invites his friends, tax collector friends from work. He invites them all to meet his new teacher, Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes are perturbed by this. <laughs> they see this happening and they begin to bring, I love the way it reads in, in Luke 5, uh, they begin to bring accusations and claims against the disciples, which is funny. Like they're not coming up to Jesus, but they're like, what is, what is it with your, with your teacher? Why is he doing these sort of things? And I love it. In verse 31, Jesus answers them, even though they're not talking directly to him, in verse 31, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, them being the Pharisees and the scribes, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus makes his goal clear. He's not trying to affirm people's sinful lifestyles, but he is coming to save lost people. So the conversation on methodology continues because Jesus just dunked on them and just showed them that they're wrong. So they begin to continue to criticize his methodology. And um, when we read this in other accounts, we can see that John the Baptist's disciples were also there doing something similar. So let's catch up in verse 33, Luke 5. If you have your Bible, I suggest you reading from there, but it will be on the screen, God willing. And they said to him, him being Jesus, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. 
And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. So when we look at this passage, we recognize this as an initial base that we can begin to build our theology around fasting. Because I don't want to like spoil the ending of this story for you. Jesus doesn't give you a prescription of fasting. He doesn't say, when Christians fast, they fast on this day for this much time. It looks like this, and you can't do this, but you can do this. This is up to your interpretation. He doesn't do that. He just says that they will fast. And so what we do from there as good students of the Bible, is we take the entire breadth of the scripture and we develop some systematic theology based on what it is saying, what it is consistently saying. And so I want you to understand it's not a great interpretive leap here to understand what Jesus is referring to. His incarnate ministry, meaning the the ministry when he was born of a virgin and he lived a life as a man for 33-ish years, his incarnate ministry was marked by some level of celebration, enough so that people were like, what the heck? Why are you always hanging out? Why are you always like feasting and stuff? I don't, I don't understand. But Jesus was, was clear many times that this was geared to change. He would speak of his own ministry. He would speak of the life of his disciples, that there was a suffering that was on the horizon, not just for him personally, but for those who want to follow him. So the event that marks this change, Jesus referred to as him being taken away. So we can understand in light of his story that this is the violence that he suffers unto death under the hands of the Jews and under Pontius Pilate. And beyond this, he resurrects, good news, and he also ascends into heaven. As as Christians, we understand that Jesus is never apart from us, but there is something that is missing with him not here. And and I think this, this state that we're in where he says the bridegroom is taken away, this is kind of the prerequisite state for the fasting of the church. So let's look at what fasting looked like in the Old Testament, just as we're forming sort of our theology and our thoughts here. And so this wasn't something that Jesus invented necessarily. I mean, obviously Jesus created everything. Without him, nothing was created, so he did invent it. But it's not something that he just like introduced and and never explained. It was something that had been in their culture for a really long time. So Initially, in the nation of Israel and their their, uh, corresponding nation, Judah, uh, before they were exiled into Babylon, there was one mandatory fast for all the people, and that was concerning the Day of Atonement. Now, we read that following their exile, once they come come back from the exile, there was four distinct mandatory corporate fasts that they they were called to. Now, by the time we get to the Israel of the New Testament... Priests and many devout adherents are fasting twice a week, which is something different than the annual corporate fast. Those are, those are different things. So I want to stress with this context that we are not like uh, replacement theists that think like everything that applied to Israel applies to us and we have to like face ourselves in there. The Bible speaks a great deal about that. But what I want to look at is the just kind of the context of where this came from. But these sort of practices were for like ethnic Jews, which is not necessarily the context that we're coming from today. And when we look at and anchor back these, these truths about fasting to uh, Luke 5, we can reasonably see that uh, what the Pharisees and scribes and the disciples of John are, are accusing and criticizing Jesus about is not the annual fasts. 
We can probably assume that Jesus kept those because he was a Jew and he, he did the things that Jewish people do. But what they're criticizing in this is this kind of newish traditional fast that was regular weekly fasting. Now, we see in the teaching of Jesus that Jesus, even though this was a, uh, maybe we can call it like a modern traditional practice, Jesus didn't dispose of it. And in his teaching, even in the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll read very soon, he didn't dispose of it, but he actually regulated it. He said that this is normal, this is what will life following Jesus will be like. But in this interaction that we're reading in Luke 5, Jesus calls back to the oldest, and I would argue most frequent reason for fasting, and that was the state of sorrow and mourning. I think of examples like the book of Esther that I referenced earlier, or the book of Joel, where there's these dire crises that, that uh, God calls through the prophet that we would um, take an extended amount of time to fast and pray and seek the Lord. I don't want to overwork this point, but there's a position from which fasting as a Christian takes place, and that is a place of mourning. And our bridegroom has been taken away. And even though Jesus is never apart from us, something is still missing. In this age, there are sorrows. There are troubles. There are injustices. And we find ourselves in a long betrothal stage. We find ourselves in this guarantee of consummation, but in an indefinite waiting Jesus himself, in the book of Revelation, describes the, the end to this waiting marked with a feast and a wedding. And you can imagine, some of you with personal experience, some of you not so much, you can imagine the excess of, of differing emotions that come in the season before a wedding. Stresses, anxieties, longings. I know Shelby and I dated long distance. We weren't engaged for very long. Sorry about that. You know, it was very that Christian young person thing to do where we got married in like 50 days or something. But, um, but it's worked out. We're going on 10 years, baby. Um, <laughs> but we were long distance, and we didn't see each other every day. We didn't see each other until like a couple weeks before we got married. And it was that sort of like ache where it's like, man, I, I all of a sudden hate Skype because it's just not the same thing as being with the person you love. And it's like, we, we love the fellowship that we have with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, but there's something that is missing when he's not here. That's why he said he's coming back. And this is where you and I live today, whether you realize it or not, that we are in that mourning and longing for the return of Jesus. And I remember Shelby talking about it, and even, uh, where is she? Linda Gill. She was talking about it the other day too, where it's like, there's something about like it, in the 90s and the early 2000s in Christian media where the return of Jesus was so abrupt and scary that many genuine Christians were not looking forward to it, but they were terrified of it. And where the Bible speaks of like, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, Christians, because of a lot of media and books and, and TV shows and movies, were like, Jesus, I'm so scared, please stay where you are, you know, like, and, it, and it's this uh, alarming thing, and, and, I, and I have sympathy for that. You may not feel that ache or longing for Jesus to return, but I believe that this setting that we can put ourselves in can be the great motive to begin your journey with fasting or to bring it into thriving. There's something about depriving yourself of food that reminds you of your own fallen state and your need for God. 
And it can cause you, it can cause you to revel in the mercy and grace of Jesus. Because we realize without Jesus, we're hopeless. We're out to sea and it's, and it's turbulent and it's chaotic and we are slaves to sin. But God, who had every right to condemn us, because he is the universal king of all things. He has every right to hold our sin against us. He himself paid our debt for us. He took it upon himself, even unto death and open shame, so that way we could be seated at his table, undeservedly, by his grace, because he is extraordinarily kind. And there is... This, this essence of the cross and what Jesus has done that has disarmed the sting of death. That to the follower of Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of death. The most certain thing in life has no sting toward you. And not only has he provided us that assurance today, but he has provided us an additional assurance that now we get to go on living in a world that is broken. But he says that he is returning, that there is a wedding day when he will end injustice, that those who are oppressed will be set free. Those who are hurting will be relieved and every tear will be wiped away and he will finally kill the last enemy that is death itself forever. And this is where our hearts ought to go in fasting. And this is where we can stand and begin to be motivated into fasting. So we talked earlier about the, the clear difference between like intermittent fasting so you can lose weight and uh, what Jesus is referring to. Um, so the difference is motive and desired effect. Uh, I wrote this down. I'll just read it to you. To be clear, the discipline of fasting is not to lose weight. And it is not to get attention. So, I mean, I can't really explain that a different way. That's just what it, that's what it is. I'm not saying, like, if you lose weight, like, God doesn't count your fast. That doesn't make any sense. Like, that's not the motive. That's not what we're going after. So the motive that we're speaking on is longing for Jesus' return, longing for Jesus' presence, longing and remembering the gospel and reveling in God's mercy. So with that motive, where do we go? What do we do when we realize, Jesus, we need you? Forgoing food isn't the goal in itself. We've said this about every discipline so far. The goal of prayer is not praying. The goal of Bible reading is not being just an absolute boss at Bible trivia. That's not the goal. It's a means to the end, which is Jesus. So we see continually that fasting and prayer are coupled together. So you may have heard me start talking about fasting this morning and think like, wow, we must be getting to the end of this series. We're, we're, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel to be talking about fasting now. But the reality is that this is actually a very good couple for the discipline of prayer. There's this context of, of seeking and decision-making that we see in the New Testament. We can look at places like Acts 13, where the church is looking to send out um, missionaries and workers to apostle new churches and new places. And we uh, relate this practice to a consistent thing because we're not just waiting for necessary seasons like you're changing your career, you're trying to figure out who you're going to marry, you're trying to figure out those sort of decisions. Those things do happen, and I recommend fasting and prayer. 
But what we want to do, I would, I would argue with you, is we want to put ourselves consistently in that setting of seeking the Lord. That we're not just waiting for a crisis that like, God, I need an answer now, so let me dust off this prayer thing and this fasting thing and try it now. But it's the idea of consistently putting yourself in that place that you're listening for the Lord, that you're, there, you're seeking him for his direction. So to add on to this working definition theology of fasting, we talked about forget, forgoing food willingly. But you couple that with seeking the Lord. And so I, I define this pretty simply, that uh, you don't eat, and the time that you would be eating, you use for the sake of Jesus. You use to thank him, to seek him, to do his will, those sort of things. I love um, this pastor, John Mark Comer, who I rip off relentlessly on a regular basis. Um, uh, he said this about fasting. You can pray without fasting. And you can fast without praying, but when you put the two together, they aid and amplify each other. I like John Piper, almost completely opposite of John Mark Comer. Um, he also said it like this. When you fast, it's like you put an exclamation point at the end of your prayer. So this is not to say, and this is an important caveat, so, so pay attention. This is not to say that we are somehow manipulating God into answering us. I, I reject any notion of that kind of prayer where it's like, if you pray a certain way, then God can't not answer you. That's, that's weird, twisted, like pagan, strange stuff. We're not hunger striking God. And more so, God doesn't need our fasting. It's not as if like God needs more food and we're taking it from him. Like it's not like that. But ha what's happening is it actually deeply affects us. It's that same motive where it's like we realize in our own hunger, like, God, I need you. God, you've provided all of this. And, and, and I think it's, it's this idea that we pray with our fallen condition before us and with God's grace before us, and we begin to long for him, not just in our minds or our inner person, but we begin to long for him with our bodies. And I already talked about the culty thing, so if that freaks you out, just know I already talked about that. And as always, we draw our example from Jesus himself. So let's flip probably one, maybe two pages over, and let's look at Luke chapter 4. For some of you, this may be a familiar passage, but this is directly following Jesus' own water baptism, where uh, the Father speaks audibly, audibly, the Holy Spirit appears like visibly, and it's this amazing testimony. And then chapter 4 begins with Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit and going into the desert fasting. Eventually, he comes to combat the accuser, Satan, the original snake from the garden. Let's catch up with that story, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, the scripture makes a point to describe Jesus specifically as hungry. I remember being freaked out. I can, I can clearly recall uh, the first time reading this story and being like, Jesus wasn't hungry until 40 days of not eating? That's crazy. I don't necessarily think that's what's being implied here. But by the end of 40 days, he was hungry. And to many of us, this would, this would connotate 
vulnerability. Now, we can raise our hands for this because we are an honest and transparent church. Has anybody ever overreacted or snapped at somebody because they were hungry? (laughs) Praise God for, for truth. Tell the truth and shame the devil. We even have a word for it in our study. Do you guys know this terminology? Hangry. But somehow, Jesus doesn't respond from vulnerability and weakness. Somehow, he has found strength in something other than the nourishment of physical food. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, saying that the Lord's will is in fact better than even the nourishment of physical food can supply. Look at this in Deuteronomy 8. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So in the context of Luke 4, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a servant of context. I can't just like cherry pick things, but we're building theology here. In context, Jesus is talking about not using divine power in an untimely or inappropriate matter. He's not being told what to do by Satan. That's, that's what the, the context of this is. But the theological truth behind this quotation of Deuteronomy 8 is resounding to us today. That our lives do not consist of the things that we can eat. And... This is, this is one of my favorite parts of, of the message. That is not to say that food is bad. God did create the food, and he created it for the purpose that we would enjoy it and that it would nourish our body. So that's not to say, like, the goal of this is that we would never eat again. No, that's not the goal. <laughs> if you've been here at church for any amount of time, we love to eat together. That is a beautiful thing. We love to eat separately. We love to eat together. We do it all the time. But the denial of something that is, isn't inherently bad for the sake of Jesus is a glorious thing to depend on him more than the things that can satisfy. So I call this section of my message an amateur's note on asceticism and Gnosticism. <laughs> I am not a philosopher. I wouldn't even call myself an, like an enthusiast. I, am, I, I, I don't know that much. It's a, it's a complicated thing. But these philosophies of asceticism and Gnosticism were very prevalent in the time of Jesus. This is very prevalent sort of Greek philosophy sort of stuff. And we can actually witness their careful, creeping, disgusting tendrils, like just just edging their way into the way that we think about God and the way that we think about ourselves. Let's look at this. The distinction I want to draw out is that these philosophies describe you as the content of the inner person, whether you call that your spirit, your soul, your heart, whatever, and that your body is somehow some wicked vessel that's just this weight that you carry with you. Some of you are hearing this and being like, well, yeah. Isn't that what the Bible says? It is not. And I want to, uh, I mean, C.S. Lewis doesn't really need my help. He's a very smart cookie, that man. But he has been wrongly attributed this quote. Let me read it to you and see if you recognize it. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And you have a body. Clive Staples never said that. And much of his teaching and much of his philosophy was quite on the contrary. And I would say, even if he did say that, and I'm wrong, I looked it up, um, there's actually a website entirely attributed to falsely quoting C.S. Lewis. (laughs) Um, uh, 
This is not in line with the teachings of the New Testament. This is not what the New Testament says. Jesus spoke so much of your conduct, what you actually do with your body. And when you worship God, it's not just somehow some internal immaterial thing worshiping God. You, as a non-fragmented but integrated person, worship God. That's why God talks about giving. That's why God talks about treating people with kindness and love. That's why God talks about these sort of conducts that you do with your body. That's why God cares about sexual ethics. Not because he's a killjoy and wants to ruin your good times, because he cares about you as an entire person, not just some sort of immaterial thing. Does that make sense? And I think this even relates to how we are saved. The, the description of salvation, we often say that, that God saves our souls, which isn't untrue, but our bodies too are being saved. That's why this, this, this end of the age is described as resurrection, that there is resurrection from the dead. Paul even said himself, if there was no resurrection, if resurrection wasn't true, meaning the resurrection of Jesus, but also the resurrection of my body, then I would be the most pitiful person on the planet. Paul is saying, I'm dying every day. If there wasn't a hope for resurrection, I would be wasting my time. Look at Romans 6. I want to start with verse 10. Romans 6 is really good. It's hard to quote Romans and not quote the whole thing, so just bear with me for a moment. Romans 6, starting in verse 10, it says this, For death that he died, he being Jesus, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I want to read that again. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, here's something. I wrote this entire message on Thursday, and I realized there's something missing and so I wrote the entire message again on Friday. And then I, I had to reorganize the whole thing on Saturday. And, and I realized the component that I was missing, vital to this theology, is a good understanding of the flesh. Because as I just explained, and, and with, with not like a, a huge over-explanation, over like that the body itself is created by God. It's for God. It exists for God. It's not inherently bad. But there is this thing that we call the flesh in the New Testament that describes this reality of your nature before you were saved. Look at Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. Do I have that one? Yes. Um, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Again, the context of this passage is there's this doctrinal dissension that's happening in the church of Galatia where they're, they're arguing with like the nature of the gospel and, and, and do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be saved? They're arguing through all this sort of stuff. But Paul is referring to the flesh here and through his writings and his teachings and the ways of the church, he's crafted this idea that the flesh represents something that's not just the sum of your body, but it's who you were. I like uh, in our Tuesday night, uh, Dale was calling it the old man that there was something that was there before that has died. 
and now risen with Christ as something new. I like the way, uh, if you read the NLT, it, it translates it this way. Let's look at that verse in the NLT. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. So this is essential to the entire idea of spiritual disciplines, not just fasting, not just prayer or Bible reading or whatever, that we conform our inner person and our body to the Lord, resisting the temptation of sin. Because there's a lot of sins that you do with your body, and there's a lot of sins that happen inside of you. <laughs> there's a lot of things that you need to continue to repent and come to the Lord. He is kind and just, and he is able to stop us from stumbling. Let's look at Romans 12, starting in verse 1. Paul continues on. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. I love that he put in the word living, so nobody was un misunderstood that. Which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we draw all these ideas together, this theology of your body, your mind, your, your inner person, your spirit, your soul, we draw all these things together to get to us actually doing the thing, us actually fasting. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, introduces this idea of fasting as he's developing like, his theology of the kingdom and these sort of things. And um, he says it this way. If you're, if you're uh, in the scripture, if you're in the Bible, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 16. Jesus says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face. I'm going to do the corny preacher thing, and I'm going to pause right there. <laughs> because the, the, real, the real kicker is whenever. Because he's not saying, if you happen to find yourself fasting, because you're subscribed to Christian Plus Prime Extra. No, he says, whenever. Which is to mean, you're supposed to. <laughs> and honestly, that in itself is kind of a cool motive. You know, it's like Jesus expected me to. So I probably need to figure out what that is. And I need to try my darndest. And, and admittedly, that's been the way I think about fasting for a long time. <laughs> like, I don't know what it's for or what it's doing, but I know that Jesus expects me to do it. So we have our motive drawn from the absence of Christ, our need for him. And the desired effect is to bring our body, our mind, our, our inner person, our spirit into agreement with God's will. I like this quote by uh, Dallas Willard. He said this, fasting is feasting on our Lord and doing his will. So let's put this all together practically. If spiritual disciplines are nothing, they are practical. They're, that's why, like, historically we've always called them spiritual disciplines, but that always sounds like something that you just do spiritually. You know, like, if I could just fast in my spirit, you know, like, that's just not how it works. This is a spiritual discipline because it comes from the Holy Spirit. Let's just call it that, you know. Um, biblical fasting is foregoing food from the motive of longing for Christ in order that we bring our bodies, our spirits, and our minds into alignment with God's will. 
In the most practical sense, this looks like setting times and terms, not eating, but instead seeking the Lord in prayer, in justice, intercession, those kinds of things. So let's, let's wind down. Are you guys ready for some tips? Number one, do we have the list up there? There we go. I got four of them. Number one is start small. So I opened with that story about the community that we were a part of that was like, like big fasters. And I, I just want to encourage you, I, I have no intention, I don't think Nate has any plans to start a 40-day fast anytime soon. And I'm not condemning 40-day fasts, I'm not condemning those extended wild fasts, but I'm just here to say, if that's where you want to start, that's, that's a hard place to start. We were talking about like running and, and duathlons this morning. If I were going to start with a duathlon, you would not see me next week. I would be in the hospital or dead. <laughs> I need to start by going for a walk. Like, I was like, this is like, you just don't do that to yourself. Don't, don't do that to yourself because that, that risk of epic failure will discourage you from actually going. And if you want to begin fasting, start with something that you can conceivably commit to and do consistently. So no one is going to look down on you for skipping one meal a week and taking it to seek Jesus and his will for your life, for your community. And, and this feels weird, but I'm going to tell you what I do. Personally, what I do, and I have done for a little bit of time, is I take every Thursday... I don't know why it's Thursday, no spiritual reason, I just picked Thursday. And I take every Thursday and I try to do 24 hours. And what that looks like, and this is a pro tip for you, is I start after dinner on Wednesday. So the first most painful part of the fasting, I'm asleep. <laughs> and then I try to take all day Thursday until dinner, not eating, and, and taking those times to seek the Lord and those kinds of things. Now, before you think I'm cool, I'm not. I fail a lot. Sometimes because I eat on accident. Guys, we have Mark Soul goes to church here, and so we have basically a never-ending like IV drip of chips. We have so many <laughs> chips here, and chips are my jam. And so there's just chips downstairs, so I could eat on accident. Like it just happens to me, and I don't know what to do with myself. But there's also plenty of times where I willingly am like, I think we'll call it a wash and I'll start next week, you know? Like, and I just eat lunch. I don't, it's not even like I get, make it all the way to like after lunch. Like I'll just eat lunch. And so the idea is that there isn't really this, this definition that's really clear and rigid in the New Testament of what a fast is, like how much time it takes or whatever. So my advice is to set terms and keep to them consistently. So here's an example. Within my own fasting, I don't eat any food, but I do drink water. I don't recommend you fasting without water. That's just not a good idea. I get a lot of like sinus stuff and I'll get like headaches and stuff. So I'll still take ibuprofen. I don't think that invalidates my prayers before the Lord. Um, and I drink coffee as just part of my life. I don't know what to tell you. Like, um, and so set those sort of terms. Say like, for example, every Monday... I'm going to fast during the day. Now, this is a very biblical model. Islam does not own sunlight fasting. This is something that came from the, the ancient Jewish tradition that when the sun is up, you don't eat. When it goes down, you eat. So you say, all right, I'm going to daytime fast 
every Monday, but I'm going to drink coffee and juice. And then do that. And then when you fail, have grace for yourself, pick yourself up, and keep trying. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep expecting that he's going to meet you in that place. I want to talk about number two. Number two is compose yourself. Now let's look again at that passage in Matthew 6 that we just referenced really quickly, and we're going to read the rest of it. Starting in verse 16, it says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And I said compose yourself because my first thought was chill out, and that might be misinterpreted. But the idea is when you're fasting, the point isn't to get attention. It's not even really to get God's attention. It's about changing something within yourself. And so to the outsider, it shouldn't look different from a normal day. And that's really at the heart of what is being said here. And I've seen people take this really far where they like bend over backwards to, say, to not say that they're fasting. And, I, and I've seen this too. And, and, I, and I understand. But there'll be people who are fasting that all of a sudden on the day of the fast, everybody wants to go out to lunch that day. And you're just like, Lord, this is either your will or I'm just this hyper-religious person, so I better just go out to lunch. You know, I better just do it, you know? And so they, they compromise their commitment to the Lord and fasting and stuff like that. And I've also seen it happen where people will, like, lie, you know? Where it's like, hey, do you want to go out to lunch today? It's like, oh, no, I already ate. Don't lie. You know, people are trying so hard to, to fulfill this part, like, um, to not be noticed by men. Um, and uh, so whether you're, you're tempted to compromise or to lie, the serious issue is this self-righteous glory that comes from, like, hypocrites. And if someone asks you to go out to lunch on the day you are fasting, you can say, uh, no thanks, not today, but can we find another time that we can do it? Boom. Accomplished. It's done. And if they're, like, really pressing you, like, you're super suspicious. Why don't you want to eat with me today? I promise God will hear your prayers if you're like, I'm sorry, bro, I'm fasting today. And they'll be like, oh, okay. It's over. It's not that, it's not that hard. It's not that complicated. Now, what I think the, the serious issue here, and it's not explicitly said in the text, but there's this idea that like they neglect their appearance. They do this sort of thing. And the motive for that is that they want the attention of the people to know that, man, I'm, I'm super devout. I'm super pious. I'm super spiritual. And what I've seen more so than people like looking like garbage when they fast is people being jerks when they fast. <laughs> Guys, we cannot... If you are fasting for the sake of the glory of the Lord, but you're biting your wife's head off, it's, you've now you've invalidated your fast. This is not the point of the fast is that, oh, I'm, just, I'm just suffering hunger for the sake of God. And I'm just, stop talking to me. You know, like, um, you, it's just, I don't necessarily even have practical tips for this. You just can't do that. You've got to dial it in. If this is something that you're prone to and you know this about yourself, it's like, if I 
if, I, if my blood sugar goes down a little bit, I'm ready to punch someone. <laughs> you need to dial that in and figure that out. Maybe drink a smoothie. I don't know what to tell you. Like, you need to figure that out because it, it cannot work that way. It cannot work that you are humbling yourself before God and, like, being a, a total jerk. You know, I couldn't think of a more proper way to say that. <clears throat> number three... <laughs> Number three sounds a little bit counterintuitive to number two, but I think this is very important. Number three is go together. And I, and I don't think this is counterintuitive because you're not fasting to be noticed by men, but all of these spiritual disciplines will have a personal, private application and they will have a communal application because it is not as if you were saved and now you are some rogue satellite that exists apart from the community of God. You were invited into the family of God. You are adopted as a son or daughter. We're doing this together. That's why we, we take time to teach about these sort of things on Sunday mornings. And so what I would do, if I were you, is I would find two or three other people, even today, this morning, and be like, all right, I, I want to do this. I want to start fasting. I've wanted to start fasting. Or I am fasting and I want to be better, more consistent. And maybe you're really good at fasting and I'm totally, you should be teaching this message. I'm so sorry. But the idea is you, you get together with another person and you say like, all right, let's do this. And you come up with some times, you come up with some terms. And that day, or, or ideally the night before, you send out a, a message and say, hey, remember, we're fasting on Thursday. And they'll be like, thumbs up. And then you fast. And then at the end of the day, you send out a text message and just be like, how did it go? And they're like, oh, dude, I totally had a cheesecake. You know, like, and you'll be like, oh, that's fine. I went to Smoke and Moe's and got barbecue. Like, same time next week, you know, like, and you, you try again. And um, that's not... I'm not, I make jokes. Um, but the idea is that you encourage each other, that you keep each other accountable, that you, you are able to track this with someone else. And I would even invite you into my own thing. I do Thursdays, and I understand, and I, and I completely recognize the privilege that I work at the church, you know? And so I'm not like swinging a hammer and trying not to eat, you know? I'm not building houses and not eating. I, I get that. I get that that's an unfair advantage. But I would encourage you, like, if you want to fast with me on Thursdays, talk to me and we'll, we'll make a little group text and, and I won't like beat you up if you failed and, and I hope that you won't beat me up if I fail. And we can just encourage each other to, to go together and to really wring out this discipline for what it's worth that is that we would grow closer to the Lord. And so the last tip isn't really a tip. It's more of just a truth that we should keep before our minds coming into something like this and that is fasting is hard. And maybe some of you are like, that doesn't sound hard. The point is that it's hard. If we, can, if we can pontificate for a moment, the reason you get hungry and experience hunger is because your body is like, hey, something's missing. <laughs> Fix it. That's why you feel hungry. And so that feeling is hard to ignore. It's hard to resist. But the point is that it's difficult. This is where denying yourself becomes something that is so unignorable. And I think if it were super easy, it wouldn't really have the same effect. And within this point, um, there's something that I want to mention, and this may be a sensitive topic depending on who you are. 
I understand I'm not unaware that people have complicated relationships with food. That in the, the tragedy of the world that we live in, there is eating disorders. Whether it's on the side of overeating or whether it's on the side of actually depriving yourself necessary nutrition because of body issues. I'm not a therapist, but I, I want to come this morning as the person who's standing up here with a microphone saying like, I'm so sorry that it's been this way. I'm so sorry, and I'm trying not to make like explicit eye contact. I'm not like trying to prophesy or anything right now, but I do want to speak to all of us in this room that this is not a joke. This is not like uh, no big deal. This is something that we do need to take seriously. And I want to say, if this is you, if you have experienced this, if you are experiencing this, you are not alone. And not just in the sense that the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you and he cares about you. And he has thoughts about your body and your nutrition that would blow your mind. He loves you and wants what's best for you. And you are also not alone in this church. I remember uh, Charlie Kaywood said something to to us uh, on a Friday night where we were talking about counseling marriage. And I was like, I'm not a marriage counselor. And he's like, I'm not a marriage counselor. That sounds really scary. But we can't not counsel people. Just because, like, I, I completely recognize and affirm the value of professional training, but as the church, as brothers and sisters, if you had a brother or a sister who was suffering, you can't just be like, I'm not a professional, so go away. We, we have to embrace you. We have to love you. We have to figure that out together. And, and this isn't like a burden to be on you, but I want you to know you are not alone in this. And I don't want something that is true, like this, this I, I, feel, I feel sure about this teaching of fasting, I feel sure about the principle and the discipline of fasting, and I, and I, and I, I, I strive in the Holy Spirit to, to present it to you in a way that is, that is measured and, and calculated and careful and, and responsible, but I want you to understand, if that confronts you in a way that is disturbing and painful and triggering, I don't want you to be like, I guess I can't be a Christian. Because that's just not true. The door is open for all of us to come before Jesus. And the Lord has a better way for you than the, the, the unfair weight that you are currently carrying. I hope over the course of this message, this is something that is um, clear. And if it's not clear, there's always an unlimited time for questions after church. <laughs> um, but I just want to invite us that the Lord is good and that we can, whether it's in feasting or fasting, that we can encounter the Lord together. And I think there's a call for each of us to take this, take this deeper. And uh, I think we can't not talk about this discipline. But at the same time, this is something that you're not necessarily getting better at. I, I think prayer is essential for every person. Listening to the Lord is essential for every person. Knowing the, the Lord through his word is essential for every person. And I think fasting is something that God wants everyone to have in their life. But I'm not trying to diminish you 
or puff you up by your relationship to this discipline. But I want to invite you, rather than asking the question, why should I? Kind of asking the question, why don't I? Because that's really, I mean, Nate asked that question last week of like, why, why don't we pray? Because for the most part, people know what prayer is and what prayer does. But why is it in times of crisis that may not be our, our immediate response? Or in times of, of, of normalcy, why is that not where our, our mind and our imagination and our heart turns to the Lord? Why, why is that? Because theologically, we may be prayer people, but practically we are prayerless people. So theologically, I may understand that fasting is valuable and it can contribute something, but in, in, my, in my core of who I am, I don't really believe that it'll help. I don't really believe that it'll change anything. And so until I get a crazy testimony of something really wild, I don't know if I want to do it. And even then, and, I, and this is a note, this is extra, this isn't in my notes, but this is, I think, something valuable to spiritual disciplines in general. Um, spiritual disciplines mostly consist in the daily, ordinary things. Eventually, we're going to get to stuff like being a witness, sharing the gospel, stuff like that. Where that may sound like something like a qualified few are, are tasked to do. That is something that every Christian is meant to be a witness for who Jesus is. So in the daily, the mundane, the ordinary, we are to be his. And so however this discipline hits you, I just want you to know that you are loved and treasured by God. And God has a genuine adventure, whatever stage of discipleship you're in. He's got something for you that is greater than what you could do for yourself. And I think fasting exemplifies that. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.